Hello, everyone. I'm Christina Roberts Enneking, and I am here to welcome you to the Real Eyes Realize podcast. This is a platform where we feature everyday people making ripple effects, actualizing love in their families, communities, and the world at large. Real Eyes Realize is a show where life and service dance together. For all of our podcast listeners, we invite you to sit back or take us with you on your walk or drive or however you enjoy your podcast. But listen deeply. We are here with our guests, here to listen to the sparks that have inspired action and heart-centered service and highlight ways in which we can also be motivated and inspired to create the positive ripple effects in our world. We're prepared to get real as well, authentic, courageous, and vulnerable through truth-telling and in that relating with one another to the things that matter most. So thank you for being here and enjoy this special treat, our next episode, just for you. So we welcome today this amazing, amazing guest, Mr. Kane Carroll. And I wanted to give a little introduction of Kane as we move into this interview. And thank you, Kane, so much for being here as part of our Real Eyes, Real Eyes podcast. So Kane Carroll is a wild mystic, and he is a rebel spiritual teacher whose embodiment of radical presence and teachings on awakened consciousness offer a fresh and much needed blueprint for the new humanity we yearn for. He is the architect of the clear, bright teachings that invite seekers back into intimacy in the sacredness of life. And he is the co-creator of Innate Medicine, a new paradigm in whole person healing with Josepha Rangel, MD. So I wanted to just invite Kane. Thank you for being here and so excited to see you and hear from you. And for our listeners, so excited that you have an opportunity to meet Kane Carroll. And I'd like to offer up, first of all, let me know if I just did not pronounce your partner's name appropriately. So do correct me if that is the case. Maybe it's Yosefa. Um, and also, I just wanted to hand over the baton to you to have you tell us a little bit about your story, um, kind of where have you come from, where and what has brought you to where you are here today? Yeah, yeah. So just first, so it's Josefa, um, Josefa Rangel. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, so my my journey with all of this starts in childhood. Um, the first with my mother, the first kind of memory that I can, that I can recall in terms of like the beginning of spiritual cultivation and the spiritual path. Um, I was with my mom in the bathroom. I must've been four and a half or five, five years old. And we were in the bathroom together, brushing our teeth, getting ready for bed. And I looked in the mirror and I still remember very clearly looking in the mirror and, and thinking that looks strange. And I was talking about my own reflection <laughs> and like the face that I saw in the mirror, the image I saw in the mirror was different from the way I felt inside. Um, it, I, I had kind of remembered myself differently and later through dreams and things and meditations, I remembered myself as much darker brown than this skin and, and different versions of myself. Um, I didn't understand that in that moment, but what I said was I pointed in the mirror and I said, mom, that's not me. And she kind of laughed and she said, yeah, that's, that's right. And I was like, well, then who am I? And then she laughed again and she was like, well, that's what you're going to need to figure out. Mm. 
And it planted this, this seed, you know, of course I hadn't been exposed to self-inquiry practices. I hadn't, you know, met Vedic practices yet, but of course, uh, many traditions, even the Koan tradition in, in Chan and um, Chinese Zen um, have so much value around this idea of that question and this kind of yearning to understand, you know, what, what is this existence? What is this, this uh, expression of beingness that we call I? Um, so that planted a deep seed in, in, in my heart, mind, and, and my mom continued to be my primary spiritual teacher through, through my life until she passed. Um, so that kind of planted a seed and then time moved forward. And then the next kind of, um, landmark was I was interested in martial arts and I was interested in Asian spiritual practices. And I didn't know really how to access that. Um, and there was a Japanese cultural center in our, in our town, and they were giving judo classes for kids. So I told my parents, I wanted to try that. And they brought me to the Japanese cultural center. And at this point now I'm 13 and my mom and I had met, had many conversations about spirituality and meditation. And she had taught me basic body-based meditation that she always practiced. She would practice in the middle of the house. She would practice on the couch in the middle of everything. And I remember asking her, you know, isn't it distracting to you? She would say, Kane, I'm going to meditate. And I would be playing, you know, video games or running around or getting my skateboard or whatever. And she said, no, you know, it's not, it's not uh, a problem for me. If you're just doing whatever you're doing, there's, there's no distractions. Everything's included. Mm. And again, it was like a seed that went in. I didn't understand exactly what that meant. A seed went in that I remembered much later. Um, and around that time, I started going to the Japanese cultural center and studying judo. But of course that, that culture around the, the dojo was influenced very much by Japanese cultural in general, but by Zen practice as well. Um, so we bowed to elders. We, you know, we would practice meditation. The, the women would do flower arranging. The older, uh, like the grandmothers of the community would do flower arranging for events and things. And I was interested in that. Mm. So I just started soaking in all of this, like all the conduct related to spiritual cultivation, taking our shoes off before entering the dojo and treating the mats like sacred. And when you enter into the space of the dojo, you bow as you walk through the threshold, right? So the teachings were not explicit in the way of verbal, but they were a part of the culture and they soaked in. Like I intuitively understood space is sacred and you, you bow to it as you enter and exit that space. And Elders are sacred and you bow to them and relate to them in a certain way and male, female dynamics and teamwork dynamics, like male, female, male, female dynamics existed off the, off of the mat in the, in terms of like, you know, it was very traditional in a way, like open the door, but on the mat, I was young it was totally fine to go full out and fight judo, male, female, there were no gender rules. And 
all of the women there who were practicing were much more experienced and advanced than I was. So they all kicked my butt in judo, which was fantastic. (laughs) I love it. I mean, talk about a practice of humility, you know, at an early stage and just not seeing gender as anything different than maybe the skin that we wear. Right. No, I mean, I remember this one woman, Tracy, she, and I was 13. Right. And she was, she was older in high school. And she was really, she had been doing judo since she was a little kid and she was really sweet and helpful. And she would always teach me, but when it came to Randori, when it came to like open, open gym, you know, fighting, she would just throw me all over the place, like without any, like what she wouldn't hold back at all. And it was amazing because it taught me a ton about the power of spirit and the power of training. And I, as a 13 year old, I, I, I couldn't understand like how she was so much faster and stronger. And, you know, I was pretty strong and wiry and all of that. But so it really taught me that there's no, there's no like free lunch. You have to train, you really have to put your time in and practice. And, um, and, and so I did, and I did that, you know, all through, you know, junior high and high school. Absolutely. Um, and that, that gave me kind of the basis for, you know, later, which would be, you know, studies of yoga, Buddhism, Taoism, um, in a more kind of spirit, directly spiritually based cultivation and health cultivation. But it was really the martial training that gave me the basis and the discipline to be able to really engage with some of those other practices. And when a teacher would tell me, you have to do this, you know, 10,000 times, I would just do it. You know, I, I wouldn't question because that's how it was, you know, with judo and, and with wrestling, you had to get up before school, a couple hours before school and train um, and go after school and train. And um, it was very competitive. We were training for tournaments which was what I needed as a young person. Mm-hmm. Uh, later in life, I, I came to kind of go the opposite direction from competition with, you know, yoga and all of these things, like to really de-emphasize the interest in trying to do it like anybody else. Mm-hmm. So I had to go through some, some period of dealing with injuries from the martial arts. And I had some injuries from yoga because the little interim between martial arts training and competing and finding yoga asana practice, there was some, uh, some hard lessons in learning how to be gentle mm-hmm. and how to not, you know, push and how to not use that kind of like martial intensity with practicing asana and pranayama. So I had to, I had to learn how to heal my own body through those practices because there were quite a few injuries that I had. I broke ribs and really tweaked my neck and lower back. And, um, you know, in judo, you're trying to choke out the other opponent and arm bar them. And, you know, it's, it's ritualized kill, right? So it can be pretty hard on the body. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like too the, um, you know, the, the learned competitiveness, you know, be at your best, your devotion to the trade, also can come through in so many areas, right? Whether or not it's yoga asana, even, uh, you know, deep philosophy training, like how do I get to the truth? You know, how do I get to be the best? So I love the element that you said in that space between like the lessons were through life lessons, experiential lessons, you know, the body is here to say, wait a minute, you also compassion for yourself, compassion for others in this process. 
And so it sounds like that was something that you listened to just as much as you listened to the other teachings. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting because on one hand you're going full, full power, you know, on the mat and you're, you know, you're, you're not holding back at some level, but you're holding back. You're holding back something that would actually harm the other person or harm yourself, but it's a fine line and people did get hurt. And um, I'll just share one story because it taught me a lot about how to, how to understand our own injuries and how to understand our own power in relationship to our body and other people. Um, there was a kind of tournament that we would do that would be, it was a team tournament. So a lot of the tournaments were individual tournaments. And in that way you would, you would play against a person of a similar weight and a similar ranking, yeah. but team tournament, there would be like five people and the five people would line up against the other five people. And so there could be a large difference in weight or ranking depending on who all was on the team. Right. Sure. So in this particular team, I ended up fighting against a person who was much older than me, much higher ranking and, 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 and bigger, like bigger and stronger than I was. And I was, I was studying judo and wrestling, both freestyle and collegiate wrestling. Um, so him and I, you know, got on the mat and, and I could quickly tell he was way better than me at judo, but in wrestling, you can change your, you can change your body position and you can do other things on the mat that might give you an advantage versus like standing and just going like toe to toe with judo. So I started utilizing some of those techniques and it turned out that he, he came into my legs and I did this move where you, you pick the person up and you bring their, you turn them upside down and you bring their head toward the mat. And at the last minute you use your forearm and you hit the back of their head. So mm -hmm. it tucks their chin under, so they don't hurt their neck, but they land on their back mm -hmm. Land on their back. You instantly win the match. He did. He wasn't familiar with how to fall in that move. Cause it's not really done in, in judo as a wrestling thing. And he put his arm out, mm. put his arm out, his body, all his body weight came down on one arm and these two bones broke and actually came out of the skin. It was a really bad injury. Oh, gruesome. And I immediately just felt like the horror of like, I didn't want to hurt this person. And and had never hurt someone before in that way, intentionally or non-intentionally. And the, the etiquette in judo is that I had to kneel just away from him on the mat and like go completely silent, just sit in Seiza like in front of him. Mm. And like, you're not supposed to, you're just supposed to like, let it happen. Like, right. No emotion, neutrality. And inside, I'm just like exploding. I'm crying. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm, I feel horrible. And, but it was like to give this person space to have their own experience. And then the medics come and they do their thing. But it's like to not, it was like to not take away the spaciousness of his own experience, but to be there present with him in it, but to take away nothing or add nothing. It was extremely difficult to do that. And it made a really strong impression on me, one, on how to be more potentially careful of other people, mm -hmm. strange as that 
sounds in a martial arts tournament, but it's like, how do you interact with somebody in a way where you're caring for them and caring for yourself and still, you know, winning the match, so to speak, mm-hmm. how do you give space to someone's experience without either like flooding them with your own emotion or becoming aloof. It was one of those moments, like a threshold lesson for a young, I was in high school for a young person um, that had a huge impact on my interest in martial arts. In fact, it was one of the reasons why I started moving away from martial arts. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, um, the, the teaching on that is like one of these, you know, meditative, it was, it was, a, it was an expression of meditative practice in, in a way where you're allowing space for even the most intense emotion or physical experience to have the room to be able to billow hmm. forth. And to be able to embrace it and accept it and allow it, allow the energy behind it room move. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you remember? I mean, it sounds deeply respectful and um, for you to be in that ability to have your own sense of emotions and also be in that space of, of watching and allowing the space for the experience of your opponent. Do you remember after, did you process it in your own way, like with your mother or with a coach or was that kind of held inside? Curious. Yeah. I mean, I processed it with my coach cause I, I was, I'm a pretty passionate person. And I was just like, since it, like, why did you make me do that? Why did you, you know, he told me what to do. And I like in that culture, you just, you, you do it right. It's yeah. very much of a, you know, guru kind of relationship. Like, and then you can ask questions later. And he just said, you know, that like for you to kind of like go and try to like attend to him or for you to be crying or you, it would put the attention on you. Mm. And in, in the culture of, of the martial arts and in the culture of, you know, Zen and in the Japanese culture, that would be considered self-centered. Mm. Like in that moment, it's not about you. What happened, happened. Yeah. And, and you saying, I'm sorry, a thousand times or you, it just, it just comes off as a kind of self, you know, mm. self and self self-interest. So you, you like the action happened and then you have to deal with the reality of it, like without embellishments and amazing teachings, huh? Amazing. It was like, it was like, <laughs> a, uh, yeah, it was so difficult for me to, to get that now. I mean, yeah. So it, 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 I, I did it because I respected the tradition and I respected him. But again, it was one of these moments where a seed goes in and I couldn't comprehend it all that was there in that, in that teaching um, and how to apply it, you know, how to, how to apply that in a way that's dynamic and not just regurgitating some kind of fixed yes. thing from a moment, you know, that was 30 plus years ago. Um. So yeah, that was um... it's amazing. Well, you know, Kane, what I love about you, and and we've worked worked together, you know, co-hosting uh, different um, sessions, whether or not it's around breath work or qigong. Um, but what I love is your ability to go deep into whether or not it's the training or the knowledge, and also the integrative factor that you have of how do we bring this to an experiential sense of knowledge. You know, how do we integrate? even what might be disparate worlds, you know, Western medicine and Eastern medicine for the attempt of looking at whole body healing. So I'm curious when you think about that and the depth of the training and the learning that you've done, can you tell us too a little bit about kind of what has 
what brought you to where you are today with the work that you're doing in the world? I'm so curious. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the meeting place of these influences, right? So, so after that period, because of the injuries and, and also the, the desire for deeper internal cultivation for deeper internal spiritual development, I, I wasn't finding my appetite for that wasn't satiated within what I was finding in the martial arts world. So I started into the yogic practices Mm. Um, and my first exposure to that was with the Sikh uh, community in Arizona. Um, So studying Kundalini yoga, I would spend time uh, with the Sikhs where they were living and there were a couple that were coming onto campus at Arizona state. And so I got to spend a lot of time with two, two, two teachers in particular. Mm. Um, so that brought me really deep into the meditative breathing Kriya aspect of, of movement practice, physical practice with an internal focus on energetics. So I was very hungry for that. And I was using that to heal some of the injuries from martial arts. I was using it to, to work with some of this yearnings within myself to heal aspects of what is difficult for me in, in society, um, racism, sexism, violence, like ever since I was a little kid, these things really, really affected me Mm. wherever I would see them in society and experience those things in my own life and school, they would affect me really deeply in a way that I felt something doesn't feel this doesn't feel harmonious to the world I want to live in mm-hmm. and I have to find a way to work with these things within myself and in a way that I feel I could change something about that in the world. So all of those things were yeah. you know, tied in together. Um, during college, I went and did a study abroad program in Mexico. I lived in Cuernavaca for a semester and I was, by that time I was already practicing deeply meditation and yoga. And I was interested to see if I could find some of that spiritual culture there. So I was able to meet and study with some curanderas there um, around the Tepotzlan area in the mountains. And um, that, that further fueled my interest in my journey because now I'm starting to see that, wow, this, these traditions um, come from all over the planet. And there's this core of, of, of teachings and, and powerful lineage from mm. all. Now I've got exposure to Chinese martial arts, um, Japanese martial arts, Zen, um, a Kundalini thread tradition from India. I still haven't traveled to India yet. And now pre-Columbian spiritual culture from Mexico, mm. um, So when I went back, back to school, I now wanted to go and my interest in traveling to Asia was growing. Of course. So now it's like my eyes are starting to be set on Asia. I'm a college student, so I don't have much money. (laughs) Um, So it was during Christmas time, I think it was my junior year that I learned about the courier flights where essentially you pay $300 and you pick one, you pick three different cities in the world, like your top choice, second and third choice. 
and you can't bring any luggage with you. <laughs> and they use your luggage space to ship cargo. Ah, no kidding. Right. And there were, there were like, there was a database of the different companies that were doing this. So I chose Bangkok as my first choice. I wanted to go to Thailand and get exposed to Thai Buddhism. Um, and then you just give a bunch of dates and then they call you and say, you have a flight and you get like three days notice. Love it. <laughs> and I had three days notice to get ready to go to Bangkok. And, and I had like a few hundred dollars in cash and that's all I could scrape together. And it was like break during college. So I flew to Thailand on this courier flight. Somebody meets you on the other side and, and they check off your, your thing and you just have a carry on. Right. And so I traveled around Thailand for a while going to temples and studying with Thai Buddhist monks and, you know, learning, learning the Pasana practices and just spending time by myself and in these temples practicing and staying. And that again, planted another seed. It was like a, it felt like a kind of going home, like a mm. kind of familiarity that was different from yoga, different from Japanese Zen, um, a kind of softness and a kind of sweetness that's there with, you know, Southeast Asian mm -hmm culture and the Thai people and the food and studying cooking. And so this, this kind of planted more seeds connected to healing, cooking, meditation, um, and the Vipassana, you know, based aspect of the practice, you know, really focusing the mind. Um, so yeah. that, yeah, by that, by the time that that trip happened, I was getting close to finishing college. It had, it kind of completed like a package of different pieces that I knew after college, I really wanted to devote my life to learning more and more about all of those pieces. Absolutely. All of that while, you know, trying to be a college student too, but my heart was in all of that and not really in the classroom. <laughs> I totally hear you. And you know what I love is first of all, your, your quest for adventure and travel. And it's like, I'm going to figure out a way, like who knew about those cargo flights? It sounds almost like the military flights that go on. I love that. I'm just glad that they didn't put you in a shipping container and just give you a little space for air. <laughs> yeah, my parents were glad they weren't shipping contraband. They were like, you're going to go to a foreign country and people are using your, your checked bag space to ship something. You don't even know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little funny. Uh, but at the same time, like you knew, and it sounds to me when you talk about feeling like you are home, the home is that place in the heart where, you know, that's what, that's what I'm sensing from what you have to say. And the quest that you have had and the opportunity you've had to be exposed to so many different traditions, each of them gifting you and inviting you with this deep sense of knowledge that all goes to some universal truth. So no matter what language it's in, what culture it comes from, that's, that's my understanding. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of inner knowing a kind of, a kind of heart that, that pulls forward. And it's, it has always felt to me that I'm like navigating with like a soft focus. We might say, I don't exactly know what's going to happen next. And I don't have like a very strict plan of what's gonna, of what's going to unfold when I get there that's kind of been how I, how I traveled in all of these, in all of these ways. You know, there's something that brings me to a place and then I can sense that there's more and I, and I'm, and I'm navigating being pulled, pulled by, and that's how I have met 
all of my teachers, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know that judo was connected to Zen and connected to flower arranging and connected to this conduct training. I was just pulled by like one piece of it, you know, but when I met um, my sensei there, Mike Noriega, he, he taught me so much about life, you know, that I, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know that's what I was like seeking. So yeah, as I finished and the, so that the next piece happened, my, my feeling was that when I finished college, I wanted to go for a year to central and South America. Mm. And I wanted to, again, I had this sense that, that the, that the roots underneath Buddhism and, and at this point I hadn't studied so much Taoism, but I'd been exposed to Taoist practice a little bit, but more the Indian yogic practices that the roots of all of those practices were animistic. And I wouldn't even have used that term back then. I just, I, I probably would have said the roots of those I sensing are shamanic are kind of pre Vedic in Indian culture are pre-classical in Chinese culture, predate Buddhism in Buddhist culture. But I didn't know exactly where I would find that. I didn't, I didn't think to go to Asia for that. I just knew that I had tasted it a little bit when I lived in Cuernavaca and that it was there. Mm. So I went looking in Central America and South America and went from, from Southern Mexico overland all the way down to Argentina. Um, so I met shamanic teachers in Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia. Um, and interestingly, I met Taoist teachers in some of those places as well. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah. And so that, that started my journey into animistic shamanic practices, which of course do predate classical yogic practices and predate things like Tai Chi and modern Qigong by numerous centuries, right? And share the common roots that we could say are, have given rise to these cultures, which have a Qi-based or prana-based worldview. Mm-hmm. Now I'm starting to touch into what I really was seeking and what, where I felt that I didn't fit well with modern, the modern way of seeing the world a reductionistic mechanistic way of seeing the world. Again, I, I didn't know that that's what it was. I just knew there was a rub there that just, I I could never feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. you know, within that. And so as I started touching into these ways of relating to everything of the natural world as alive and sacred, it was like, okay, I found my people. I found I found my view. I found the vision within which I can understand the world in the way that has felt, um, has felt native to me since I was a kid. Um, and in that way, it was funny because I, I thought, I thought I was going to study like apprentice with shaman and I did a little bit, but I ended up apprenticing with Taoists in Latin America. Wow. No kidding. Who knew, right? (laughs) There one teacher, he was from Ecuador and one parent was Ecuadorian and one parent was Chinese. So he grew up in China and Ecuador. And so he bridged classical Chinese medicine, Qigong Taoist practices and pre-Columbian native Ecuadorian shamanism, herbalism together. And I got really sick in Ecuador. So I had to go to him as you know, as a, as a patient. Yeah. 
So, I mean, this is, you know, this, I'll just share this story in a visual way. Cause it was, I was, I got really sick. I probably had some form of GRD or some gut, you know, micro. Sure. I didn't go to hospitals. I don't know what the microorganism was, but you know, vomiting, diarrhea, all of that. I'm staggering through this little town in Ecuador looking for where I might get medical care. And I see this door and over the door is like an old rusty piece of metal, round piece of metal hanging over the door. And it's kind of like blowing in the wind and I'm like delirious and it, everything's like in slow motion. And I look up and I, and I see that it's the yin yang symbol. How interesting. And I'm like, what is the yin yang symbol doing over a doorway in Ecuador? You know, like wh where am I again? So I'm like, I have to knock on this door. I knock on the door <laughs> and, and this guy opens the door and he's like, you're sick. And I was like, yeah, he's like, you need to come inside Oh my God. in Spanish. And so I go inside and he takes my pulse and I, I quickly understand this person's a Chinese medicine doctor, but he looks Latin, but he looks Chinese. And <laughs> so he just says, you just lie down, lie down. And he gives me acupuncture mm. and writes me an herbal prescription. And, and he says, come back tomorrow. And so I feel a little bit better. I come back tomorrow and he's like, I, I'm going to teach you. Uh -huh. And he says, okay, every day I'm going to give you acupuncture, give you herbs. We're going to go to the market. I'm going to teach you how to shop and how to cook for yourself. And I'm going to teach you Qigong. Wow. And I was like, I'm staying in this village. Like yeah. whatever I was looking for, this is it. And so I just stayed there. And it turns out that was the, that town is Banyos where the hot springs are uh -huh. in Ecuador. And so I had the hot springs there, my cooking teacher, Qigong teacher, Chinese medicine teacher. And he's also teaching me about, you know, the local traditions as well. And it's all in Spanish. Of course. And I tried to pay him and he was like, no, you just teach me English. Oh man. Reciprocity right there. Mm. So this was also something that was really dear to my heart, this feeling energy between people that everything's not commerce, you know, that there's. It's about the exchange of it. So I stayed with him um, in his house and, and got to study. And the things that I learned from him ended up being the basis for the pain-free joints program that I developed and made a DVD about. That was the basis for all of that stuff, all of those ways of moving the joints in a very circular and round way to heal arthritic pain and injuries. I learned from Liusha. Gosh, that's amazing. This is the whole thing of when the student is ready, the teacher is there, right? Who knew? And without, you know, and then I'll just like make a connection to this like time of the pandemic, right? It's like, well, I'm in intimate relationship with things I can't see that impact my immune system, right? All of our immune system wouldn't exist without those microorganisms with, with, with our relationship that we have with them over time, we develop our immune system, right? Yeah. So here I am in relationship with some microscopic organisms I got from eating something that, you know, was different from my body. And without those microscopic organisms, would I have met Liu Shan? Mm. I don't know. I, I might have just cruised through that town and searching for what I thought I was looking for. You know, it's because of that that I stopped in that town. Yeah. You, you can know, see the connection like, all like nothing <laughs> happens to us. It all happens for us. Right. If we're just quiet enough to listen and watch and see that. 
Right. So incredible. So I mean, it's one of the principles now with Dr. Engel and I, we see illness Mm -hmm. as often an entry point into a full scale engagement with our life. Many of the patients that we work with at innate medicine and the work that we do, we see often that without this provocation of the, of the health condition or the dis-ease, that person wouldn't have been called as deeply into engagement with their life. And they discover some healing that's different than just getting rid of pathology. It's a deep kind of transformative process. And that has certainly been the case in my life, you know, injury and illness have been big guides for me to find, you know, ways of engagement. So absolutely (laughs) the the entry, the gateway, the door in right to a deeper sense of knowing Um, this is actually a great opportunity. I think to tell us a little more about what it is that you're doing uh, with Dr. Rangel with innate medicine. Um, Tell us more about even what you're seeing like through the pandemic as themes and patterns. Uh, I think our listeners would be really interested in that. Yes. So innate medicine is based on the principle that healing is an intrinsic aspect of the natural world implicit in all living things. Um, And that's important because if it isn't, if it isn't inherent within the human body and within a redwood tree and within a, you know, a caterpillar, then it has to be acquired from outside of itself. And of course, nothing else in the natural world is acquiring the power to heal and regenerate outside of itself. It interacts with its environment to find resources to support that within which it has inherently, constantly arising within itself. We can see that when you, you know, if you cut off a tree limb because you're trimming a tree, the tree will heal over, it will scab over that area and it will develop over years uh, a healed area and maybe even develop some other aspect of advantage for itself to thrive based on that. If we cut ourselves by accident, the skin will grow back together. Even if we had to get stitches, right? Mm -hmm. The stitches just bring the two pieces of skin closer together. And then how is it, by what power do those cells regenerate and grow back together? Well, that is the innate medicine within our body, the constancy of healing and regeneration. So we organize the practice around how to support that within the individual. Mm. And there are things that, can inhibit and there are things that can support and even accelerate that power of healing within us. So we utilize, we utilize nine different areas of human life that we call the nine petals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can bring up a diagram of that. Moment. Yeah, please do. And for yeah. those listening, we'll have a screenshot um, available in our resource hub Uh, And we'll also do a little video snippet on this because it's really nice to be able to see a visual as well. Um, So let me bring that up. Can you see that? I see it. Yes. Beautiful. So the idea is something like the centerpiece is this brightness, this aliveness. Mm. So I developed this to essentially be the basis of the teaching of what we call the clear bright teachings. The clear bright represents the, the 
masculine and feminine aspects of being or yin yang aspects of being solar lunar aspects of being inherently unified shining aliveness out into all directions mm -hmm. that represents the flower so this flower is our human beingness at all levels and this light in the center is that which is innate within us and within all things so for human beings we have a physical experience that's this apple with the heartbeat and the weights the physical embodiment aspect of our being that needs attending to and and disease or illness can show up primarily in that realm um, above that the the head with the gears represents the movement of thoughts this is our mental experience mm -hmm. our relationship to thoughts and thought forms um, above that the heart with the hands is our emotional experience and as we get into these first three, physical, mental, emotional, if we track the pedal back down to the center, we see that the pedals are all overlapping at varying degrees, but they overlap completely at the center. They all share the same source. Mm -hmm. And so although at the tips of the pedals, we could look at these as different, and they are different expressions. As we get deeper into them, we realize that the categories are not exclusive they're inclusive right and so with mental emotional well there is a difference between thoughts and emotions but what is it we're not exactly sure but we can play with those two aspects to find how we can support our emotional experience mental experience and physical experience in such a way that feeds that innate medicine that light at the center mm -hmm. Um, I almost see it like you could look at it, you know, individually. It's almost like you shine a different light on that aspect, but at its source, they're all integrative. Correct. So the looking at the, the relationship between all is really important as well. Correct. And so that, again, the reason why I wanted to say like, this is the centerpiece is the very basis of the clear, bright teachings. The first principle of the clear, bright teachings is that separation has no reality to it. There's actually no such thing as separation at the level of ultimate reality. At the level of apparent reality, there's individuation, there's embodiment, there's thoughts, there's emotions, but those things aren't actually separate from the, from the universal tissue of life. There are aspects of that which is never separate. Mm -hmm. Right. So whether we're looking at the nine petal flower of an individual to try to understand what's happening with them in the clinic, to try to help them work with fibromyalgia or insomnia or cancer or depression, we, we understand, we have to look at all of the aspects of the individual to be thorough. But what we're realizing is that all of those are actually not separate aspects of one experience and that individual just like if this were a flower is not separate from the ground within which this flower grows this individual isn't separate from the from the land from the air from all of the other human beings and so we work with that those two aspects at once the individuation and the non-separation at the same at the same time we're working with both of those mm, it's so beautiful and i feel like i cut you off from after the third pedal so I, oh, i'm so interested to hear more <laughs> yeah so the next three these three over here 
This one is sexuality, the two, the heart with the two people, you know, looking at each other. Um, this has to do with our sexual experience. The idea is that there's, there's individuation and there's non-separation. So I drew the diagram so that there's two in one. And part of that is because the idea is our sexuality begins with our relationship with our own experience of sexual energy, right? And remember this, these petals are us in the center, you could say as the light of awareness, expressing out and relating to an aspect of our humanness. Mm. Sexuality is an aspect of our humanness that we have, we're our first primary partner. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and I mean like internally, even bef- before we become sexually active, as young people, we're in a relationship with an energetic that is inherently connected to our ability to thrive. Mm-hmm. Right? So here at the center, re- reproductive energy is regenerative energy. Beautiful. So that's, that's very important for our healing and our, um, and our thriving. The next one down, the three people kind of giving a big hug to the earth. Mm-hmm. This is the relational pedal. And this has to do with all aspects of relatedness, uh, relationships with our coworkers, with our family members, with our community members, relationships with our partners, romantic partners, sexual partners, business partners. It's relatedness in and of itself, the contact point of how we engage our connectivity with life. Mm. Um, And then the next one down with the sack of money has to do with resources, access to resources, whether those are financial, physical, um, real estate, land, um, even human resources, you could say, connects very closely, obviously, to relational. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it's resources that allow us back to the center to express that which we truly are. Mm. relationship to our resources can confuse that which we actually are or it can support that which we actually are Mm. Um, so kind of again you know you and i have a shared um shared history with yoga so we could use that term here like what's the yoga of our relationship with resources Mm -hmm. right so that's right livelihood kind of ideas and and more um, and then the next three are the creative pedal. That's the palette and the musical notes. Mm. Um, and it has to do with how we, how we express our creative energy in relationship to the other eight pedals. Mm. It's not just artistic creation, like making music and making art or writing poetry or whatnot, as it can be those things, but it's our creative expression in relationship with all of the other petals, how does it integrate into the rest of our life? Mm-hmm. It um, could even be creating an amazing meal correct. that the family shares or something to that effect. Correct. Together. Yeah. Culinary. Yeah. And, and so that, that, and I want to say that that's important because any of these petals can become an attempted refuge to try to find space from our suffering. Mm, Say that again. 
any of these pedals could be a place where we try to put all of our attention and energy to run to, mm -hmm. to get away from, to avoid where it is that we have pain or suffering. For example, I'll use the creative and the physical. And we see this a lot in the clinic and I see this a lot. Uh, I saw it with myself and I've seen it with many of the people I've worked with. Okay. Let's say somebody has a high capacity for athletic excellence, you know, a marathon runner or a cyclist. Mm -hmm. They could use overindulgence of that aspect of life to run away from emotional or relational pain. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm on my bike and I'm a hundred miles in and like that, I'm getting those, you know, those hits of happy hormones from, mm -hmm. you know, from exertion, I don't feel any pain. Mm -hmm. Is that person running away from their emotional pain and using physical over-engagement to do that? Possibly. I see that a lot mm -hmm. over here. I feel amazing when I stay up till three in the morning, writing music, and I don't feel any of my, let's say relational pain, relationships, having a difficulty or finances are difficult or physical difficulty. Mm -hmm. Right. And so is the music being used to create integration with the person's whole life, or is it being used as a place to run away from life? Mm -hmm. The escapism. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so can spirituality, right? We can, mm -hmm. we can use it that way as well. So, so the idea is that each pedal engagement brings us back to the center mm -hmm. and prevents us from using any of our cultivation practices as a kind of bypassing or escapism. Mm, beautiful. Which we're all susceptible to, uh, you know. That's part I'm of the human condition. Yeah, the human condition is like, wait a minute, I don't want to feel that pain. So what can I do to avoid or run away from it, right? Exactly. Uh, but that's not the path of integrative healing, is it? Because uh, it's going to be there no matter what. Exactly. So, tell yeah. us more. There's two petals okay, so in the home and a tree. Yeah. Yeah. So the the home is the environmental petal. Um, and in the early days of developing this model, I used to call it the domestic or sort of home pedal. And what I realized was it's not just the home. It is the environments within which we spend a lot of our time, how we create those environments and how those environments either support us or inhibit us. So the idea is that the environments where we spend the most amount of time, those are our second physical body. Mm. Right. And this is actually a teaching I received from my mom as a, as a young child. And she taught it to me through dream interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, she's, you know, she would say, okay, did you, would you, did your dream have to do with your body? And I, you know, sometimes I said, no, it had to do with the house. Okay. Well, the house is your second body. What was going on in the house? Well, this happened and that happened. Well, those things are going on in the house of your consciousness right? And so your interaction with that space is really important. The way that you, the way you eat and exercise and sleep for your physical body, the way you keep your space in your house for your environmental body, there's a really strong interaction there. Mm -hmm. And then your office and your car, wherever you spend a lot of time. And so cultivating that space as, as if it's your body, that has had an amazing impact on me. And, it, and that insight has helped a lot, helped us in the clinic mm -hmm. where sometimes people have really difficult to diagnose, you know, pathologies and we find something going on in their home space, right? Mm -hmm. This is of course the basis of, 
of feng shui and vastu sciences in China, India has a lot to do with this. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the environmental pedal. And then of course, as with the model, if we pan out a little bit wider, we're talking about the home or second body, or we could even call it the first body of us all, which is the planet, right? Yes. Yes. So is our cultivation reaching out to the level of the planet? Right. And, and, and does it include where we live and in our, in our home space and go all the way out? Mm. And so there's interactivity, re relational practice between our home space and the planet. The last one is the ancestral petal. Mm. So um, kind of a tree seeds, that idea. And in, in using the word ancestor, I, the way I learned about this from my Taoist training was that it goes forward and backwards. Mm. So ancestors are not just the ones who came before us, who of course gave, gave us these bodies, right? But they're the ancestors who come after us also. And in that way, time is circular. Mm -hmm. And so even if we don't have literally our, our genetic material in another body, in other words, we haven't procreated the ancestral impact of our actions on the planet, our activities, that those things that we create, the things that we do and bring to life in, in our world are become ancestors. Mm -hmm. um, and so in this way, the idea is, to practice in such a way that create, we create brightness and clarity through our ancestral line and we can heal ancestral pains forward and backward through engagement, through cultivation inside this ancestral petal. And of course, sometimes a person will come to us with an illness that we realize is largely connected to something going on ancestrally, mm -hmm. right? Whether that's like an emotional pain ancestrally, you know, working with, Holocaust survivors, for example, um, or there's an ancestral pattern of alcoholism or drug abuse or, or physical abuse. Um, so that can have a big impact on mental health, emotional health, you know, and, and authors. So that's a way that we engage with a kind of healing where the whole person is considered mm -hmm. and and that might include doing, you know, Dr. Engel doing blood work and looking at, you know, looking at things from that perspective, but it's one piece among a much larger picture. And a lot of this is subjective, right? So the person is sharing their direct experience of being the one in the center here, living that life. And from yes. that, we get a lot of understanding about how to help a person. Yes. This, first of all, I just want to highlight how holistic this feels. Um, you know, I love the elements that you've brought, just the name clear, bright, you know, you're talking about the dance, the, the dance between all of these different energies and uh, just the beauty of the depth of um, kind of experience through all this. So thank you for sharing that. And what I'm kind of thinking out loud is that I could see us putting uh, the nine petals and an explanation of each as a resource on the online resource hub for those that are interested to find out more. And if people want to find you and Dr. Rangel or understand maybe some practices that are available, because I know accessibility is really big for you. 
how would one go about and find that? We'll make sure to include those in the show notes. Yeah. So two places, one innatemedicine.com. That's our, the website for our clinic work. Um, so people can go there. There's a bunch of resources there that, that people can read and listen to. If people are interested in inquiring about working with us through innate medicine, they can inquire through the site and awesome. Dr. will follow up with them. And also canecarroll.com. That's where I house all the blogs um, and writings and people have access to, to books and the DVD programs, as well as the weekly self-healing class. I and mean, everybody's invited to join that. It's an open platform. Um, those are all donation based. Um, so the way we're doing it now in the last year or so, we founded a 501c3 nonprofit. And so it's a donation based um, exchange um, in this way for the classes and, and also encourage people to engage in that way. The donations go to support Clearbright. And then from that, we're creating the programs and things mm. that come. So beautiful. Thank you so much, Kane. And um, one thing that I, I know that when we talked in our intake call, I know that you've really been getting into poetry as well. Um, not, not getting into it, but expressing so many beautiful uh, things that it seems like words are hard to express, but through poetry, there's like a different language of love. Uh, so as we close this out, I'm wondering if you might share with us a poem as we clear this, um, kind of close out our podcast today, and then we'll do a few collective questions and uh, say our thank yous. Okay. Yeah. I would love to do that. Um, I selected a poem for today that um, it's dear to my heart because it's um it's the poem that Dr. Rangel encountered that she read that inspired her to reach out It's sort of the poem that, uh, that inspired our connection and collaborative work. And it's a poem dear to my heart. And I also, I selected it cause I thought you would, um, you would enjoy it because of shared experiences of teaching and things that you and I have done. There's some pieces that reminded me of some Aww. of them you and I have done together. So thank you. Honored. The title is Dark Mystery. And I wrote this in 2017. In her search for light, the sage plunges deep into the dark mystery. She explores the totality of her being and takes complete responsibility for her life. The dynamic of cause and effect remains ever clear in her mind. She is not afraid of what lurks behind the shadows. She has renounced avoidance, integrated light and dark. Accountability is her secret weapon. My life is my own making, she thinks. With this understanding, vital energy returns to the center body and mind repair and rejuvenate, purpose and vigor ignite, and living takes on new meaning. Yet, my life is not my own, she reflects. The ancestors gave me this body. My form is on loan from the cosmos, this flesh a garment, woven from natural elements. Body belongs to heaven and earth. I cultivate myself to give something back, she exclaims. The guiding light of internal alchemy and true potency of self-transformation 
is not ultimately to gain personal benefit, but to serve others. To do this, the sage burns disruptive habits in the cauldron of awareness, incinerates self-defeating tendencies in the golden red fire hidden deep in the center. The sun never takes a day off from shining, she whispers. My original mind is just like that. With patience and persistence, her practice begins to shine like the sun and her heart glows like the midnight moon. As she illuminates her own life, the world grows a little bit brighter. Wow, beautiful. I just want to give that space. I feel like that is the mic drop moment game. <laughs> I think that's the way that we close this out. Beautiful. I actually have, that just resonates like a tuning fork in the heart. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your time, your talent, and uh, really look forward to continuing to support you, brother, on this journey and this path. And thank you for all that you do in supporting the community and all of those that are really interested in a deep level of healing on a holistic level. So, sure. Thanks for making this space for me to be here. I really appreciate it and appreciate all that you do and your, and your work and appreciate the collaborations, the ongoing collaborations we've had through the years. Yeah. Me too. You do. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to another impactful conversation here on Real Eyes, Real Lies podcast. We hope you take some time to let the wisdom of the stories that were shared here today sink in. And we welcome you to engage with us on our social channels at realize.love on Instagram, at realize.love on Facebook, and also our virtual voicemail on SpeakPipe. You can call us and let us know individuals you'd like to hear us interview or ideas for stories that you think would be impactful for others to hear. We also have links in the show notes and we invite you to go to our website, realeyes.love, where you will find an online resource hub. It is our gift to all of our listeners to provide you the resources and support in making your own ripple effects actualizing love in this world. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing all that you do. And remember, be true. Be real, be you, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.